0: okay perfect okay let's pray father thank you lord for this day thank you for uh, your grace and mercy that you extend to us every day thank you that your mercies are new every day know that it's summertime and in the heat and um sometimes it's just hard and father just um uh, i know for me the heat just i don't like going outside in the heat the heat can make you moody and Father, I just pray that you would um, cause us today to really focus on the grace that has come to us through our Lord Jesus. And Father, we love you this morning. Lord, we thank you. And um, just reminded today so much, Lord, about the truth that Christianity is really about love. And that Jesus said that the world will know that you're my disciples by your love one for another. And greater love has no one than this. And man laid down his life for his friends. And Father, certainly you've shown us incredible love. And uh, we stand in awe of the love that you give us. And so, Father, help us, Lord. We know that we live in an age where the love of God has is under assault and is being threatened to be cheapened and to be liberalized. But we know that the love of God is to hate evil. We know that the love of God is to... Uh, obey your commandments. And so, Father, we just pray that you would give us a passion and a love for you, God. Renew our love for you, Lord, and uh, increase our love for you. Bless us as we study, Lord. Give us the mind of Christ. Help us to discern rightly your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, so today I want to study the doctrine of, let's see if I can spell this word right. Man. And the doctrine of man, okay. Um, I want to look at the, the idea of the creation of man because we've been looking at the creation. So turn to Genesis chapter 1. There we kind of get a glimpse of how God created man, obviously. Um, and uh, we are told in verse 26... It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over all and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, 'Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it rule over the fish of the sea over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth then god said behold i have given you every plant yielding seed that is in on the surface of all the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed it shall be food for you and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the sky and to everything that moves on the earth which has life i have given every green plant for, for food and it was so god saw that all that he had made Uh, God saw that he had made and behold it was very good and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day so man was created on the sixth day but uh, I want to before we get into Genesis and into some of the theological issues that are going on here I just want to want us to contemplate something that our culture and our society really doesn't like to contemplate and that is what is man or They contemplate it, but I think they come to the wrong conclusion, right? Uh, These are fundamental questions, right? What is man? Where did man come from? How how was he made? What does it mean to be human? What is the purpose of man? How is man to to behave and to get along in this world? I mean, these are the simple anthropological questions that we have to ask ourselves. And if we don't answer them biblically, then we're going to be then we're going to adopt what the culture has adopted, which um, has divergent views of man. Man, you know, according to the world, man is not, is not a creature created in the image of God. Um, you know, we, we live in a society that is, above all things, humanistic in their thinking. And, together with evolution, uh, man's origins are accounted for without God. And uh, you guys have made me or you, you guys have heard me make a reference to the Humanist Manifesto, right? And if you read that online, you just type it in the Humanist Manifesto. They have different revisions of it. They're very explicit to say that man has no divine origin whatsoever. That man doesn't have a soul. He doesn't need. He doesn't need a soul. He doesn't have a spirit. He doesn't need gods or, you know, any kind of uh, angels or demons or nothing like that. No spiritual aspect of man. So man becomes the measure of all things. And under a humanist thought, which is really the only option, either you're going to have the biblical thought, or you're always going to have some kind of idolatry or some kind of humanistic thinking that basically says that man is the ultimate thing, that man is the ultimate uh, arbiter of all things, that we determine for ourselves our destiny, our purpose, our life, our worth, all of those things. And um, that is obviously unbiblical, and it's not compatible with Scripture. So, let me just uh, talk about the term man for a second, the term man. You know, if you look at the Bible, and you just did a lexical study about the word man, what you find is that man is a term that is used in the Bible for all sorts of different things. It's, um, uh, when you think of the word man, what do you think of? You know Well you usually think of mankind Okay That's, that's interesting Because was that's not what I think about gender. Primarily What's that? Gender well, The male gender? Yeah Right The male gender Right Do you ever think of a woman When you read the word man? Mm-hmm. Depends on the context right. you're reading. Yeah Exactly That's right that. Because there's sometimes That God uses the word man To represent woman Right and so we, yeah, so we just have to keep our eye on the context. As Wally said, we have, to, we have to look at the fact that in the Bible, the term is used to refer to human beings, so mankind, right? It's also used to refer to, to the male gender, like we talked about, but it's also used to represent both male and female. Turn to Genesis 5, verse 2, just to maybe show you this last definition, Genesis 5, 2. Okay. It says there, He created them male and female, and He blessed them and named them man. You see that? Man. In the day when they were created. Isn't that interesting? He created them male and female and named them man. What could that be talking about? Now, that verse right there, Genesis 5-2, uses the Hebrew word Adam, Adam, which is where we get the word Adam, (laughs) right? So the Hebrew word Adam is Adam's name, Adam, Adam, Adam. huh? In Spanish too, Adam. In Spanish too, that's right, Adam. So what is Genesis 5-2 trying to communicate to us? By doing this, why didn't he say he created them, male and female, and he called them Eve? Why doesn't he say that? Just showing, I guess the, the, uh, the headship. Yeah, the headship already. Okay. Yeah, that's right. So turn with me to First Corinthians as we consider the headship, because when we talk when we talk about having a biblical view of man, we'll get into this more. But just to see the biblical worldview and its understanding of male and female relationships it is a it is a combination of equality and distinction at the same time so let's begin in 1 Corinthians 11:8 it says for man does not originate from woman but woman from man for indeed man was not created for the woman's sake but woman for the man's sake therefore The woman ought to have a symbol of authority over on her head because of the angels. Now, this is in the context of head coverings. Okay, we're in 1 Corinthians 11.10 at this point. It says, says, however, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man or is man independent of woman. And so just in case, man started detecting there for a second. See? (laughs) Ha, ha, ha. You know, you came for me and you exist for me, right? Very quickly, Paul says, no, you're not to think of yourself as independent from woman and woman independent from man. For as the woman originates from man, so also the man has his birth through the woman. And all things originate from God. And so Paul is here trying to bring the Corinthian culture back into the proper orbit of Scripture. Because what's going on in 1 Corinthians 11? The whole context there is about head coverings, right? Now, My position on head coverings is that it was a cultural issue introduced <clears throat> in chapter 10, verse 31 and 32. There he introduces the rationale for um, conforming to the cultural standards of Corinth. Uh, he says that it's in a, basically that it's a shame for a man to cover his head. But I have news for you. When Jesus prayed, he covered his head. So is Jesus a shame? Of course not. I think I take this idea of nature in this passage to be speaking more along what is natural in a given culture. When Jesus covered his head to pray as a Jewish man, he was not an abomination or a shame. Likewise, in the Jewish culture, all the men covered their heads to pray. So are they at a step with nature? No. They're out of step with culture to some cultures, but in Corinth, what was going on? And I think John MacArthur brings this out really good in his Bible, his uh, study Bible, is that there was a real strong feminist, uh, 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 almost like a cultic streak in the culture, where women would shave their heads as a sign of rebellion to male leadership. And so, what Paul is trying to do is convince the women to go back to a proper submissive role back to a uh, proper male leadership which let me let me ask you guys is that relevant for our society today mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right yeah see the word of God is always so relevant right uh, we don't need to make it relevant it is relevant mm-hmm. and the more out of control our culture gets the more relevant scripture is to the culture because mm-hmm. it's a corrective I mean our culture is uh, I tell you I could be preaching at UNT for example I could be preaching for an hour the second I mention Something about male headship, the ah, demons come out, you know? <laughs> you know, and I've had that. You know, I've had lesbians surround me in a circle. You know, I think I told you that before, right? And a group of lesbians came out protesting me, and they're holding hands, shouting, shame, shame, shame. Saying, you know, shame on me for preaching, you know, the Bible says. Oh, what you, did know? you say? Oh, I don't know. I don't want to go back to that, but I'm just saying. <laughs> I do remember what I said, but... <laughs> I just said, you know, it's better that, <laughs> you're supposed to be a helper, not, <laughs> yeah, I just told him, you know, better that, you know, I I mean, you could sit here and yell, yell shame or shout shame, you know, but one day God is going to put you to eternal shame, mm-hmm. you know, and said so you need to repent, you know, and trust in, trust in the Lord, so, but yeah, I mean, this is so important, you guys, I mean, male headship. Um, is so important to me because I just see it, you know, I see it eroding everywhere. I mean, last night I was talking to a woman pastor, you know, for a, how long? You know, for like 20 minutes, hours. And, years. and, wow. and uh, she was a shepherd and she was a pastor and she was an elder and, you know, and a minister and all of that. And it's hard, you know, to sit there and tell somebody, well, you know, the Bible really doesn't teach that. <laughs> you know. You know. <laughs> It's like, have you ever read First Timothy? You know, what I mean, it just says it right there, very plainly. You know, don't allow a woman to teach or have authority over a man. But what do you find? You find female head, female leadership in thousands of churches, denominations. You know, a lot of Pentecostal denominations are are just infiltrated with feminism, and and uh, male uh, male leadership is gone, and uh, that has everything to do with. With everything, it affects the home, it affects the marriage, it affects the church, it affects society. Uh, and what does society tell us about male headship? Well, it makes men look, you know, it, it portrays men as, as people that are not, you know, meant to be taken serious. You know, dad's just kind of a, you know, a, a stump, you know, sitting on the couch, you know, watching, you know, whatever. And it's just clueless and, you know, the kids made fun of him. the wife makes fun of him. you know what I mean? He's just to be mocked and, you know, ridiculed. And that's what a man is in today's society. You know, he's a big dummy, you know. And uh, so the scriptures would want us to recover a biblical view of man. And male leadership has everything to do with that. Now, you remember that Adam, in back in Genesis, if you go back to Genesis, one of the things that it says specifically that men were supposed to do, that, that uh, uh, m- men that man that is male and female both together were supposed to subdue the creation so the creation was to be beneath them not above them and so already you have God putting man in his proper relationship to things around him to his environment but by the time you get to Genesis you know by the time you get to Genesis what is it 6 you know you already see man is completely idolatrous you know power of Babel, man Man has become a total humanistic worshiper, right? Thinking that all the power resides within themselves. We will build a tower that will go to heaven. Mm-hmm. You know, we have all the strength, all the resources. We have all the ability and all the intelligence that we need to reach God himself on our own. And uh, that is uh, what the world has been doing ever since the post-Genesis 3 existence. Um so that is a little bit about uh, the way that God created man, and so much can be said about that. But just quickly to ask the question: What is the purpose of man? What is? Why does man exist? Glorify God why do mind. you exist? Right? Better know the Westminster Confession at this point. You know, we're not Presbyterians, but you better know look, either that or the the London Baptist Confession. Either one, you know. Right? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That is what the confession says, and that's right. That is the chief end of man is to bring Him glory. He created us for His glory, and for His glory we exist. Turn to Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43. God created us for His glory And that's what it says there, Isaiah 43, a couple verses. Everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. And again, in verse uh, 21, it says the people who I have formed for myself will declare my praise. So that idea of existing for his praise, for his praise. Now, we know everybody. We'll glorify God, right? Mm -hmm. So where do we get that idea from? We know the people of God will glorify God, but where do we get the idea that everybody will glorify God eventually? Revelation. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Okay. Where is that? We need a text. Text. We need a passage. Mm -hmm. Right? That's important, right? Where do we have the authority to say everyone will bow? Everyone will glorify God. Whether willfully, right, through repentance and faith, or through, or through a forced, a forced submission to the will of God, not that amazing? Yeah, that's been quoted twice, but I'm looking for a scripture, 2. huh? 2. Very good, Felix. Read it for us. Um, starting verse nine or 10. sure, sure. For this reason also, God highly exalted him. And bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Yeah, that's right. And so we exist for the glory of God as a mankind, as You know, all of his creatures, all of creation exists for his glory. And on the basis of that, we can also say that we exist for him. God does not exist for us. So what does that speak? What does that say about God? As we contemplate the purpose of man, we also also find out something about the nature of God. I'm thinking of Acts 17.25. Let me just read that to you. Acts 17.25. Speaking there of the God that uh, Paul wants to proclaim to the Athenians, he tells them, uh, uh, he tells them that God is not served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life, breath, and all things. So right there, we learn from that passage that God does not need anything. Right? He doesn't need anything. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need heritage grace. He doesn't need. Uh, he doesn't need us individually. He doesn't need people. He doesn't need the world at all. Uh, but he created for his glory, for his pleasure, for his purpose, you see? And, uh, yeah, that's right. So what what is that called? That God does not need anything. Self-sufficiency. Yeah, that's right. That's right. His self-sufficiency. This is kind of like the technical word for it, aseity. The aseity of God comes from the Latin word, "ah." said, from himself, from himself, which means he is self-sustained, self-sufficient, self-contained. He needs nothing outside of himself. That's my God. <laughs> he doesn't need anything, <laughs> which is uh, a glorious thing to to think about. Um Okay, so now let's talk about, uh, briefly, let's talk about the image of God in man. Back to Genesis chapter 1. Of course it says here that God says, God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them rule, right? And then in verse 27, God created man in his own image. And in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So men and women are created in the image of God. And we know that this is very important, right? Why is the image of God so important? The Imago Dei, as many have called it, the Imago Dei, right? What? Why is this so important? That's where our value comes from. Our value, okay. So, from being created in the image of God, we find our value. So our worth, right? So our worth. What else do we derive from the image of God? A similar justice system. Similar justice system? So so justice, what is that speaking of then? Right, so a sense of morality, right? Who said morality? K-Dev? That's right, so morals. So this is like intrinsic value we find our morality from the fact that we're in God's image. What else? The laws. What's that? The laws of God. The laws? Okay, that's good. Yeah, that's right. So, laws. Uh, laws. It kind of paints like a rough picture of God's attributes. Okay. All right, yeah. Yeah, the attributes of God. I mean, it really is an amazing thing to be said that you are like God. <laughs> mm-hmm. Is God trying to deify us? Mm-hmm. Of course not. Mm-hmm. Right? There is no deification going on here, right? We're not, uh, we're not becoming God, little little gods, right? Uh, turn with me to Genesis five, verse three. Genesis five, verse three. <clears throat> In Genesis 5-3, we have a very similar passage, kind of a parallel passage to Genesis 1. It says, when Adam had lived a hundred years, hundred and thirty years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and he named him Seth. So, here we find that Seth is in the image of Adam. <laughs> he is in the image of Adam. Okay. So... We can learn a lot of what it means to be in the image of God by what we learn from being in the image of one another in a sense of, you know, your children are in your image. You know, Caitlin is in the image of her mom, Cassandra, you know. I know she doesn't like me to call her name out, but I'm going to. Um, Yeah, so the way that Grudem defines this is this, that being created in the image of God means that we are like God in many ways. I think that's a simple definition, but I think it's right. You know, Seth is like Adam in many ways. He is not identically Adam, right? Adam did not beget another Adam, <laughs> okay? But he begat a son that was like him nonetheless. So, I mean, that's just a parallel of, of pointing out that we are like God in many ways. Now, when you talk about the image of God in man, this is you want to talk about man's worth. Let's let's focus in on that for a second. His worth. Okay. <clears throat> what is it about? As you look at all of the Bible, when you think about the image of God, how does the worth of man? Uh, how does how is it explained in Scripture? How do we know that man is? worth something because he's in the image of God maybe some other ways I know that's kind of a general way of asking the question but you know we know have value. value to redeem us bingo Yeah, that's right so the image of God uh, points us to redemption right points us to redemption and if it points us to redemption what else does it point us to or should I ask who does it point us to? Christ. Christ. <laughs> That's right. The Redeemer, right? Can't have redemption without a Redeemer. And so, how do you know that the image of God means that you have value? Because God redeems the image of man. What does it mean to redeem? What's that? Buy back. The Wally's on top of it today. <laughs> <laughs> to buy back to purchase something, right? And so, what's that? You just got in here. You're already talking. Man, you're, you're quick. I'm, warm. I'm warmed up. All right. He's been, he's been worshiping. That's why he's been in the presence. The, he's in tune. That's right. So it means that we are being bought back. We're being purchased. We're being redeemed um, because we're in the image of God. So the Bible basically teaches three things about the image of God. Number one, it teaches that the image of God was fallen. So in the fall, the image of God was marred. The image of God was, can we say the image of God was lost? No. No, Carlos says no. Why not? I agree with you, Carlos. But why not? Why why was the image of God not lost? I well, it was always there. It's just uh, separated, marred, separated, somewhat. Marred. somewhat? Yeah. yeah, that's right. I mean, we're thinking almost a degree, right? Uh, the reason why, guys, is because as theologians have pointed out, man, no matter how sinful he is, is still in the image of God. The worst heathen. That's what makes sin so terrible, right? Mm-hmm. Sin is a contradiction of the image of God. Sin is a contradiction of the glory of God, and that's what makes sin so exceedingly offensive because it doesn't tell the truth of who God is, right? We are supposed to be reflecting the, the, the glory of God. Uh, you know, one theologian said, the image of God really should be taught like a verb. It should convey action, right? In other words, we image God, We reflect God, says Anthony Hokema. That's right. And so um, the image of man has been distorted. It has been marred by sin, but it has not been lost. Now, this is very important because um, Roman Catholic theology teaches a similar thing, but they don't go far enough, Right? They would say that when man fell into sin, the image of God was affected. But how was it affected? It wasn't affected the way that the Reformers conceived of and the way that Augustine thought about uh, original sin as resulting in total depravity. Right? They don't even use the word depraved. They use the word deprived. Deprived. And so let me read to you for example, um, this is what uh, this is what Robert Raymond says in his systematic theology on Roman Catholic theology. He says, "In and by the fall, man lost the likeness while still remaining as the image of God. Thus, fallen man is essentially deprived the super additional gifts of holiness and righteousness, but not morally depraved throughout the whole man. Indeed." He is not even in a state of sin, but only in a state of a tendency to sin. See, so Roman Catholic theology is a total denial of the concept of original sin. Whereas the reformers would say, no, man lost the image of God so much, or to such a degree, that what resulted was a total depraved person, right? Not deprived, Not simply that we don't have holiness anymore, but that, if you would, positively speaking, we become depraved, which is kind of negative. Speaking of a negative and a positive, it's not always easy, but uh, it gets the point across, right? We're not just deprived of privileges or moral uprightness. We are actually depraved. Uh, That's the result of the fall. And um, let's talk about a little bit more... Okay, so we know that we have worth because the image of God speaks about redemption. The fact that we are going to be bought back. And uh, the Bible has a lot to say about this. Um, Turn with me to uh, Colossians chapter 3, uh, verse 10. Because this is relevant to exactly what the Roman Catholic heresy is teaching. Colossians chapter 3, verse 10 says this says we have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. And so now we're talking about the image of God being restored. Being restored. Um, yeah, that's right. When a person becomes saved, their mind begins to be renewed. And we begin to take on better and better understanding and better knowledge and better thinking. Theologians have talked about that as you begin to think the thoughts of God after him. Whereas before, your thoughts were not after God's thoughts. Your thoughts were all over the place and you didn't know how to think rightly. But when you come into Christ, you think God's thoughts after him, in line with him, in harmony with him. And that's what Romans chapter 12 is talking about. Having your mind renewed according to the to the word of God so that you can do the will of God. How do you know the how can you do the will of God if your mind is not being renewed according to God's will? So you have to have your mind being renewed in order for you to do the will of God. Right? The, all of that has to do with the image of God. How do we see that? How do we know that? That's a real practical point, right? If a person's mind is not being renewed, are they going to Renew their, their behavior Right They're not And that's why it's so important to study the Bible to know, your, to know the Bible To know the word To know proper theology Because the more right thoughts you have The more right living you ought to have Amen. You know But also kind of a double edged sword right The more accounta- The more accountable now you are To live rightly According to the knowledge that you have You know once you know, look, you're in a zone where a certain you know, a certain you know, way of driving is a violation. You can no longer just continue driving the way that you were. Now you're accountable and if you don't conform, you'll get you get you'll get cited. <laughs> you know. So, um, let's talk a little bit more about the image of God. The the image of God, and I wasn't joking, but the image of God also points us to the Redeemer. So turn to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, because the whole language of the image of God, and I think you guys have heard me talk about this before, but as you're studying along in your Bibles for the first time, let's say, and you read about the image of God, it talks about the image of God here, it talks about the image of God here, it even uses the word image in different places like we saw with Seth, right? Adam and Seth. And then you see that the image of God language all but vanishes from the Bible. And it just doesn't appear anymore in many of the other writings in Scripture. It just doesn't, not there. Until the Redeemer comes. And when the Redeemer comes, then the Bible explodes with language about the image of God. Isn't that amazing? Mm-hmm. So Second Corinthians 4.4 4 says, in whose case at unbelievers? The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. What is the distinction between Jesus being called the image of God versus man being said to be in the image of God? What's the difference there? Is there any difference? Did anybody? Jesus is perfectly God's image, whereas we are not perfectly God's image mm-hmm. It's an exact it's really replica created. Huh? we a really created We're created he's the, he's the image of the invisible God right? Yeah, yeah, amen, yeah he, he is the image of God He is the image of God, yeah We are like the image of God Correct We are created in God's image He is the very image of God you see me, you see me. That's right, brother Yeah, I'm getting excited Go to Hebrews chapter 1 Right, because there we have um, the image of God basically reaching its climax. Right? I love the fact that uh, Anthony Hokema in his, in his systematic book called Created in God's Image, that's the name of the book, talking about the doctrine of man. For the first time in my life, somebody told me what the image of God was really about. You know, my whole life I've gone along, you know, arguing, you know, the image of God. Well, that just means you're like God in many ways. You know, you're rational, you're emo- you're, you're a relational being, you're moral, you know, you're able to reason. You know, uh, that's what the image of God is all about. And I didn't bring it home to Jesus. You know, like the Bible brings it home to Jesus. So that when God created man in the garden, he had Jesus in mind. That just boggles my mind, you know? That he always had intended to redeem man through Jesus Christ. You know? Yeah. That's why we're in God's image, because if we weren't in the image of God, well then, the divine could not assume the nature of man. Mm-hmm. If, he didn't, if man did not have the capacity to reflect mm-hmm. the image of God, then Jesus would not have come into human nature. Jesus, my friends, would never have come as an inanimate object. He would never have come as a rock. Or he would not have come as an animal of some sort. He would not even have come as an angel. Right? Uh, He came as man. Because man has the ability to image God. And so Jesus images God perfectly who wants to read that Hebrews 1 Verses 1 through 3 Robert you're there. Yes God after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways In these last days has spoken to us in his son whom he appointed heir of all things through whom also he made the world and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Mm. Amen. Amen. That's right. So he is the perfect image of God. He's perfect representation. He has all of the divine attributes. When you see Jesus, you are seeing exactly what God is like. You, you're seeing all of the attributes in a human person, which um, it just boggles the mind to think about that. But turn to Ephesians chapter 4 now, to just to talk once again. That's another reason why, consequently, when we are said to be having our nature renewed, right, we're going back into that, we're going, as it were, you know, towards that direction. We're aiming for that goal to be like Christ who is the image of God. That's the image that God is restoring us back to now. You want to see what God's trying to make out of you in this life? Just look at Jesus. Don't look at Adam. Right? Uh, you know, is God trying to take us back to the Garden of Eden? Wasn't it good though? I mean, uh, Garden of Eden is pretty good. You know, paradise but is God trying to return us back to an Edenic state that's a foreshadow of something even greater that's right yeah that's right well what I'm trying to emphasize here is that yeah God is not just trying to take us back to an Edenic state he's trying to take us beyond Adam beyond Adam right I mean we're gonna be I mean heaven is beyond Eden Think about that. Amen. What are some ways that heaven is better than Eden? Well, Christ is there. Think about yourself for a second. Think about Adam in the garden. Right? It's pretty good. Don't even got to wear clothes. It's so comfortable. Yeah, evil will be done away with. You know, somebody told me once, I had a membership meeting once with a lady that ended up not becoming a member and she said, oh, my, my husband won't come to this. He has some strange views, uh, theological. I said, oh, really, like what? He's like, well, he said, we need to go back to the Garden of Eden because they were vegetarians. They didn't eat any meat. I said, did you tell him that they didn't wear any clothes either? <laughs> she goes, I never thought of that argument. <laughs> Boy, the conversation they must have had that night, right? Um... That's right. Where were we? Mm-hmm. So, in what ways are we better than Adam, better than the garden? Trish no was saying. Trish was saying. What's that? Right. No more evil. Okay, no, no, no. I'm talking about in the garden prior to the fall. Oh, okay. prior. Pre. Well, Satan was still fallen. Pre fall. redemptive garden. So, so Satan was prior fallen Satan, before the fall. The world. Mm hmm. Satan fell before the fall. So, even before Satan's entrance into the garden, before Maybe he entered the garden. Still is present and evil will be done away with and let's say prior him. to prior to the fall of Satan well this gets into some thorny this is kind of a thorny thing right when did Satan fall right, yeah. right. I'm convinced Satan fell somewhere somewhere after G, after God pronounces the creation very good and before the temptation <laughs> somewhere in between there he fell okay but I don't believe he fell prior to God saying all of his creation is very good. Uh, I don't think that makes sense. So I think he fell after that point. Okay. So let's just let's just focus on that. Well there'll be a there'll be like a a visible rule of Christ over his creation that didn't seem to be there in the garden. Obviously Christ still reigned and ruled, but it wasn't a visible ruling over him. I mean I guess it depends on what, what it means when he's hearing God walking through the garden or something like that. I mean, right. It, it still seems like there's this, there's still a some sort of veil between God and man, whereas that will no longer be there in heaven. They're glorified bodies. Glorified bodies. I mean Adam, was there anything wrong with Adam? Upon the original creation, what was there anything wrong with Adam? Nobody wasn't indeed. Okay, explain that a little bit more. He he was what? In the state of innocence. In the state of innocence, okay. When we go go to heaven, will we be in a state of innocence? Perfection. Huh? Will we be in a state of innocence when we go to to heaven? Well, yeah, because of Christ. That will be perfected. (laughs) That's right. That's the difference. He wasn't perfected. We will be perfected, how? Through the blood of the Lamb. That gives us what? Redemption. Eternity. Eternity. Man, I just, I hope you guys aren't annoyed right now. Because I want to get you to think, okay, about the fact that when you go to heaven, you will be in a much better situation than Adam. Mm -hmm. Your communion with God will be so much better. Adam, even though he was in a state of innocence, Adam was not righteous. Righteous. He did not have the positive righteousness of Jesus Christ. Had he had the positive righteousness of Jesus Christ, he would never have fallen. Yeah. He would never have sinned. He would have been perfected. Guess what? In heaven, you have no free will. <laughs> you can't sin. Isn't it glorious? <laughs> People get all bothered about free will. Right? I'm so glad I don't have free will you imagine being in heaven and then exercising your free will and getting out of heaven? I mean, how dreadful would that be? He's going to change your nature so much so, your mind will be so sanctified, your heart so pure, that sin will be impossible. Impossible. Was sin impossible for Adam? No. Of course not. We're all here, Right. That means that Adam, as as glorious as a condition that he was in, right? I think the Garden of Eden is so beautiful and so glorious, it's designed to make you think of something, what can be better than Eden? What could be better than, than, than a garden that's so lush and just glorious, what can be better than that? I'll tell you what's better than that, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is better than that. Mm-hmm. He is better, right, than the tree of life that you find in the garden. Because he gives you access to the tree of life. Can you write a convert part 2 <laughs> <laughs> talk all about this. <laughs> no, all I'm saying is that we have to have a proper view of Adam in the garden. He was not positively righteous. Mm-hmm. He did not have the righteousness of Jesus Christ clothing him. Probably one of the symbolic significances of his nakedness was that Although it speaks of his innocence, it also speaks of his lack of righteousness. That he was not clothed. As we, we're not going back to an Edenic state. What makes you know that? You're going to be wearing clothes in heaven. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're not going to go back to to walking around nude. Because why? We're not going to be as innocent as Adam. No, because we're going to be more righteous than Adam. We're going to have the righteousness of Jesus Christ covering us for all eternity, making it impossible for us to ever sin again and to ever leave the garden, right? So now the angels represent the cherubim for us in Christ will represent security, confidence, assurance. You know what the cherubim represented for Adam? Judgment. Judgment. Get out. Mm -hmm. If you come back into the garden... I will lop your head off. <laughs> you know what I mean? He put a, 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 a chair, he put a, what was it? He put an angel there with a sword guarding the way. And you saw what the angels did to the Assyrians. One day, slaughtered 85,000 of those suckers. Or 144,000, something like that. Anyway, I'm getting my numerology mixed up, so let's close. <laughs> Before I make it any worse. Anyway, I hope you guys think about that. I hope that makes you fantasize about... The beauty of Christ and the fact that God is taking us beyond an Edenic state to a much better state of existence, being clothed in the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, Lord, again, we thank you for uh, the righteousness of Christ that covers us, that gives us eternal security, never to fall again. I'm so grateful that there will never be another fall, never going to be another fall. Thank you for your Son, Lord, being the perfect image of God and renewing us and restoring us into that very image. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.